SCP-5392 The Voyage of the Tachyon Express Part 1 In most SCP stories, the Foundation and other similar groups often have incredible pieces of technology, sometimes bordering on or are explicitly anomalous. It's very common to read an article and see the Foundation utilizing things like artificial intelligence, black hole generators, faster than light drives, teleportation, and so on, without even batting an eye about it. What would happen, however, if we took all of that away, with the Foundation and similar groups being only slightly ahead of the curve of modern technology, and someone came along with one of these physics-breaking concepts? SCP-5392 is about a situation in which an extremely unlikely technology gets suddenly showcased to the world, and the ramifications of that event, as well as the ramifications on the individual responsible for it. Let's begin. The article begins very simply, with the object class listed only as pending, due to the anomaly being discovered less than an hour ago. The description states that SCP-5392 is a faster-than-light spacecraft currently in Earth's orbit, 900 kilometers above sea level, and research is ongoing. Junior researcher Mason Hedge notes that this just started and is moving very quickly, so he'll update the article with information as it comes in. The first addendum, then, is an audio transcript from the Foundation's site for monitoring anomalies and Foundation assets in outer space, 15 minutes after the anomaly's discovery. The main observation room of the site is buzzing with activity, as Site Director Nate Ferris enters and addresses everyone, stating that at 9.50am, their time, the Heimdall satellite detected an unidentified aerial phenomena traveling 1.2 times the speed of light within their solar system. The satellite was built to detect FTL outside of Earth's atmosphere, but its sensors instead showed an object moving faster than light and originating from the city of Othello, Washington, a city with a population of less than 10,000. The object ended up 900 kilometers above sea level, and they thought that it was an error until they received reports of an explosion near the origination point. They don't know much yet about the origination point, so they have an agent en route. The object itself has settled into an orbit around Earth, and is not in any danger of colliding with any satellites, foundation or otherwise, but they're still waiting on getting imagery of it. As far as the Foundation knows, they're the only ones aware of it so far, but that won't be true for long, and this is considered anomalous by nature, so it falls under Foundation purview. Their objective will almost certainly be to retrieve the object, so they have retrieval units on launch pads beginning emergency launch procedures for when they get more info about the object. If it turns out that the satellite was wrong and the object was not actually going faster than light, they'll just let the various world governments handle it. Imagery of the object is still being processed. Foundation agents embedded within US and Russian space agencies are trying to find out what they know, and the agent in Othello has just arrived at the explosion site. 
Ferris asks if the object is sending any sort of signal anywhere, like if it's being controlled somewhere on Earth, and the communications analyst says that it's emitting a constant 5 GHz radio wave, but nothing is being picked up on the local frequencies in Othello. One of the Foundation web crawlers, however, has just picked up a live stream, claiming to come from the object. They bring it up on the big screen, and it shows a live stream on YouTube of an elderly bearded man, approximately 60 years old, sitting down in what appears to be a spacecraft. There are various consoles in the interior, but the low quality of the stream prevents their labels from being read. The man is wearing a mechanic's jumpsuit, with a name tag reading Albert, and the emblem for Maple Auto Repair is shown. The man is in the midst of speaking about how the theoretical maximum speed of this craft is 1.5 times the speed of light, although he didn't exceed 1.25 times the speed of light during launch. He continues by talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, with Ferris asking who exactly he's talking to. The communications analyst responds that he's speaking with the commenters on his livestream, who are asking him questions, or calling him fake, or asking for more evidence. Currently there are 36 viewers, so Ferris tells them to send a priority request to MTF Gamma 5 to prevent anyone but the Foundation from viewing the stream. They also need an engineering team in here to review everything in the video, and they need to figure out how to communicate with the man. On the stream, the man continues by saying that he hopes NASA gets their eyes on this, and he sent them a link to the stream through their publicly available email. He really hopes they pick him up for making this in the future with other engineers, and eventually go to Mars and beyond. He says that they can go to Mars in 12 minutes with this, instead of 12 years, and wipes a tear from his face. He says that he's so happy, and this is the greatest day of his life. A short while later, Ferris sends an email to the O5s updating them on the situation. The engineering team has confirmed that the ship is nothing like any of their traditional chemical engines. It's not a rocket, it's not chemical, or nuclear, or even any known means of anomalous propulsion, and it's even still up in the air whether or not the ship, called the Tachyon Express, is anomalous in nature at all. The pilot has been confirmed to be Albert Maple, a mechanic from Othello described as an enthusiastic hermit by the locals, eager to help them with their cars, and is noted as being extremely chatty and geeky. Local hazmat teams in Othello confirmed no usage of any dangerous chemicals or material typically used to fuel spacecraft, but they did find press brakes, sheet metal, mylar, and other materials and machines used for the construction of spacecraft. An MTF is working on the ground to amnesticize and disseminate misinformation, so the situation is mostly contained there, while Gamma 5 is still working to track down and amnesticize everyone who saw the livestream. They've blocked the livestream to everyone except a few accounts the Foundation has access to, and are spoofing the viewer count so Albert doesn't notice the drop in viewership. In order to stream, Albert had to hijack a nearby commercial telecommunications satellite, and the Foundation has now gained control of it. 
From there, they're working to gain control of the computer he's using to livestream, as well as making sure that no one else can hijack communications from them. Some of the major world governments and space agencies are focusing on the craft, pointing their satellites at it and keeping their missile silos on standby, as well as trying to communicate with the ship. Another MTF has tried to mislead or otherwise sabotage their efforts, but they're spread way too thin, so they're past the point of no return for at least ten countries and five space agencies. The GOC has reached out offering to destroy the vessel, but they're also respecting the Treaty of Anomalous Organizations, which prevents another organization from interfering if one organization responded to an anomalous situation first. The Foundation is returning the gesture by keeping the GOC in the loop, as it's still uncertain on whether or not their offer will be needed. More than likely, they want the FTL technology as much as the Foundation does, so they'll keep the diplomacy going for now. They also need them to keep UN-joined countries off of the Foundation's back. The Foundation is trying to see if they can hijack the spacecraft itself, but based on what Albert has been saying, he has four redundant navigational computers on board, and implied that the livestream computer was separate from any other ship systems. If that's true, they'll have no conventional way of gaining control of the craft, not at the moment at least. Ferris has designated one of his communication analysts, Macaulay, to be the one to speak with Albert, due to him having experience as a hostage negotiator. He'll be posing as a NASA SATCOM operator, and his goal will be to get Albert to land close to somewhere where they can retrieve him. On another note, they received a communique from the US Space Force, stating that they have no business meddling in affairs that aren't anomalous in nature, and that the Foundation taking over a commercial satellite was an egregious error. They're ignoring them for the moment, to let the GOC calm them down, but this is going to be an international free-for-all if they're not careful. Everyone wants their hands on this technology, and Albert is surprisingly not talking about how the FTL drive works, just ranting and talking about sci-fi, future implications, and how annoying it was to set up the software he's using. Ferris guesses that he won't share anything until he gets his wish, a job with NASA. With that, we're given the transcript for the first communication between Albert and Macaulay, under the guise of a NASA SATCOM operator. Albert was contacted prior to this through a Google Voice phone number he had set up for his auto repair business, and given directions to transmit on a secure communications channel for further communication. Macaulay starts by asking him if he has a means of monitoring oxygen and carbon dioxide in his cabin, and Albert remarks on how cool this is, saying that his CO2 and O2 levels are good, with enough filters up here to last for a few days if need be. Macaulay asks if he's experiencing any medical symptoms, such as trouble breathing, headaches, or pain, and Albert says that that's a great question, but he's not having any pain, just seeing flashes of white light, which is normal because radiation can pass through your retina at this altitude, causing the white light. Macaulay cuts him off, saying to stay focused, and asks if he has food and water, as well as a Geiger counter. 
Albert continues to respond by referring to Macaulay as Houston, saying how good it feels to say Houston out loud, and that he has three days worth of rations and water, as well as a Geiger counter. Macaulay then asks how he's disposing of waste, and Albert explains that he got lazy and made a really small airlock compartment that he sits on, which depressurizes and ejects his waste, with sanitary wipes to clean up after. He then asks if they're watching the stream, and Macaulay responds that they're all watching, and that it's amazing what he's accomplished. Everyone at NASA is proud of what he's done, and he gets the entire mission control room to begin applauding, causing Albert to break out in tears for a minute. After he recovers, Macaulay says that they do need to talk about what a surprise this was, as a metal object suddenly appeared in space with no one knowing what it was or who it belonged to. Albert apologizes that he didn't get clearance for the launch, but he's hoping to atone for that with community service, as he winks repeatedly at the camera. Macaulay replies that he thinks the higher-ups were willing to do something along those lines, but asks him what kind of magic he's got running that thing. Albert says that he really wants to tell him, but he hasn't seen a formal job offer letter sent to his email address, so he can't talk specifics yet. Macaulay asks if it's safe, as he's breaking the known laws of physics here, but Albert says that it's perfectly safe, and he basically broke physics once, not twice. He had to do two things, first of which was going faster than the speed of light, but even harder than that was returning to a stable speed and orbit. He had to come up with a whole way for a spaceship to hit the brakes while going faster than light, while taking care not to exert stresses that would rip the ship or him apart. Macaulay asks if that's the law he didn't break, so how did he get around the conservation of momentum? Albert says that he didn't, as he had to store all that kinetic energy somewhere, but before he can elaborate, he gets distracted by a message on his LinkedIn profile containing a job offer from Jeff Bezos. The salary is more than he's made in his entire life put together, but NASA doesn't have to worry, as he knows what he wants. Macaulay asks him not to respond to Bezos further, and Albert says that if he wanted to sell out, he would have filed an application at the patent office, and he didn't do this just so rich boys like him could deliver Amazon Prime to the moon. Macaulay replies that that's a relief to hear, and asks if that means he created this for everyone to partake and enjoy, not just NASA. Albert says that he needed to see if it worked first, but beyond that, he was going to make his employment with NASA contingent on him making the specs for the propulsion public domain. Everyone should get access to this, as space is too important for one group to have. Macaulay replies that that's going to be a decision for the higher-ups to make, causing Albert to say that he can just make it for them, and he can send the application to the patent office right now. Macaulay tells him that if he does that, virtually every nation on Earth will have access to the blueprints for what he's doing, including ones that are on the list of state sponsors of terror. Albert says that, respectfully, Macaulay just doesn't get it, as this is something to bring people together, 
Macaulay says that they'll just make bombs that kill people faster than light, and while he gets it, other people won't. Albert frowns and says that they've given him a lot to think about, so he'll get back to them, ending the call and the live stream. The GOC Relations Office sends an email over to the Foundation Department of Public Outreach, saying that while they've been extremely cooperative and honoring the anomalous treaty, they feel that the Foundation is not reciprocating. While the transcripts and imagery the Foundation has provided have been great, and they very much appreciate it, they've taken on an unfair burden on their end to keep the US, Russia, and China all under a lid to say nothing of the member countries of the ESA. He can confidently say that they need more, something to give the aforementioned countries so they don't go off on their own and try to ground or destroy the craft. To add to the pressure they're currently facing, various private space companies are in danger of blowing the veil by pressuring politicians or other agencies in order to put more pressure on the GOC to do something drastic. He's had calls from the UN General Secretary, the Chinese Minister of Defense, the head of NORAD, and his bosses have definitely been on the receiving end of this pressure. Jobs are being threatened in a way that has never been done before, which is only more indicative of how drastic and urgent this request is. The biggest thing that can be provided is a path forward, as right now the Tachyon Express has gone dark for a few hours, and the silence is deafening. Waiting for Albert to make a move is not at all a good idea, as it just gives more time for pressure to build, so they need to make a move soon, even if the craft isn't anomalous. Speaking of which, he asks if the Foundation has considered any anomalous means of retrieval. He would like to point out again that destroying the craft may be the safest option, as in the worst case scenario, everyone goes home disappointed, but normalcy will be maintained and no one will be affected negatively by this technology. Regardless, they will not do so without a green light from the Foundation, as this is already a large enough international incident as it is. They've enjoyed the Treaty of Anomalous Organizations too much to throw it at the wall because of a backwoods inventor with a short attention span. The Department of Public Outreach responds by saying that Ferris has informed them that Albert is making contact again, and they'll forward the GOC's message to Ferris for immediate consideration. They sincerely appreciate everything the GOC has done during this situation, and if it wasn't for their continued cooperation, this issue would likely have escalated beyond their control hours ago. They have considered using anomalies to retrieve the spacecraft, but it's unlikely that they'll go through with it. Of the anomalies in their custody that could pull this off, most of them are not trustworthy, and the ones they can coerce or trust enough aren't necessarily reliable. Furthermore, using an anomaly to retrieve the ship while under the eye of so many world governments would be ill-advised. Plus, the possibility of a containment breach is the last thing they need right now. We're then given the transcript for the second communication between Albert and Macaulay, although Albert has still not reactivated his livestream. Macaulay asks him how he's holding up, and Albert says that the previous conversation was a splash of cold water, 
and he's been doing some math. He's been trying to war game this out, and says that they could try and make it so that only certain countries have this technology. He doesn't like it, but it would be mutually assured destruction if they did, and that worked during the Cold War. Then again, all it takes is one regime change and everything's so unreliable. That leaves too much of a chance than he's comfortable with, so he's moving on from that. Macaulay says that they're in the same boat down here, and the higher-ups are trying to come up with a solution that satisfies everyone. He asks Albert how he's feeling, and he replies that he could be better, he just wants to know where it all went wrong. Macaulay tells him that he hasn't done anything wrong, aside from not notifying the authorities. He tells Albert, frankly, that it all boils down to shit happens. He wanted to create something for the world, and he succeeded, but now it's here, and it's nothing like he imagined. After a pause, Albert says that his mind is jumping ahead to what he's going to do now. If he comes down to Earth, whoever gets him or the engine basically has a shiny red button to blow up the world. He doesn't like it, but he didn't build this thing for security. Nuclear bombs have multiple levels of checks and balances to make sure they don't go off accidentally, or if it's ordered by someone that shouldn't have the authority, but he has none of that in here. The only hurdle is calculating trajectories, which his navigational computers can do on their own. This is a proof-of-concept vehicle, a minimum viable product, and he can't stay up here forever. Macaulay responds that he has an idea, and he'll have to run it by some people first, but if he's right, no one will be happy, but he'll get his wish. He'll update Albert when he can. In a subsequent email from Ferris to the O5s and the GOC, he says that an idea has been proposed to him which isn't perfect, but solves a lot of their problems. The UN would have control over any future FTL spaceflight programs, and the Foundation would also get an FTL drive, but would require the express consent and launch codes from the GOC to launch at all. This would essentially mean that the drive designed by Albert, henceforth referred to as the Maple Drive, would become public knowledge, and no one country would oversee it. Rather, the UN would announce that they are creating their own spaceflight program, requiring three of the five senior UN member countries to launch any spacecraft, and multiple trust but verify levels of security. Ferris says that this is a big decision, which he can't make on his own, so he needs to ask that the O5s conduct an emergency vote. In the meantime, the UN Security Council should also have an emergency session, albeit discreetly, to discuss the safeguards that would be made and to come to a decision fast. This takes pressure off of the GOC, advances humanity in a meaningful way, and moves forward to secure an asset which they still don't know is anomalous or not. As far as retrieving the ship, that would be a joint effort by the Foundation and the GOC once they get the governments in line, with the Foundation keeping the ship and the GOC getting custody of Albert. All of this needs to happen extremely fast, as the Tachyon Express only has 68 hours of life support left, and they don't know what Albert will do as that timer gets closer to zero. 
He's rational, but his situation is desperate, and he knows it. The O5s then put the proposal to a vote, settling on cooperating with the GOC to establish the Maple Drive as a controlled technology. The GOC replied the following day, stating that the UN Security Council convened late last night, with there being a lot of yelling and assertions. They eventually agreed that they didn't trust each other enough for individual countries to have their own FTL programs, so the Maple Drive is staying at the UN level. The lobbying and political hammering from countries has lessened drastically now that they have something they can do about it. As for the private sector, they're starting to work with the GOC rather than pressuring them now that the FTL is being handled at the UN level, wanting to discuss contracts. The GOC Director of Relations personally thanks Ferris and his negotiator for suggesting a proposal that has likely saved the jobs of many of his bosses and colleagues. That being said, this is relatively fast-paced for a decision of this magnitude. While they are used to making quick decisions in the interest of security, those decisions usually amount to agreeing that a group of people is bad, and then passing it off to NATO or the fleet allied commander. For other, more longer or involved motions, like if a country on the Security Council is doing something that violates the sovereignty or compromises the security of another, there's a lot more arguing, with a stalemate that can last for weeks in deadlock. Agreeing to multiple oversight committees was an easy decision, but deciding which countries, aside from the main three superpowers, would also have oversight is still ongoing. Furthermore, there was a lot of debate on what to do when a country is caught making their own FTL drive, with everything being thrown around from automatic sanctions, full trade embargoes and tariffs, military retaliation, and so on. There's also the issue of the UN agreeing to funding a space program, but that will come later, as for now they're just focusing on restrictions, security, and mutual oversight. They're also undecided on whether or not the Foundation should have any FTL at all, regardless of GOC oversight. The discussion pretty much came down to two opposing sides. One side believes that the Foundation were the ones that proposed this in the first place, and if it weren't for them, the GOC would have just destroyed the ship. The other side believes that the Foundation already does whatever they want, so keeping this technology from them will give them a reality check, plus the ship may not even be anomalous. The Director of Relations suggests that they speak with Albert and try to buy some more time with his carbon dioxide filters. The UN Council can generally agree on broad strokes quickly, but get lost in the little details. Despite all the setbacks though, the Council almost certainly will come around and agree to a proposition that will please humanity as a whole, and Albert may get his wish in the end. We're given another conversation between Albert and Macaulay, with Albert having started up his livestream again, although it's still not publicly visible. He can be seen floating in zero-g behind his seat, eating a packed sandwich. Macaulay tells him that he's got some good news, informing him that the UN Security Council met last night and have agreed to keep his model for FTL flight and subsequent development of it at the UN. No individual country will have it, 
so it will be as close to an international effort as they can get. Albert's very happy to hear this, saying that it's probably making some people very angry right now. He's still getting messages from SpaceX, Blue Origin, even his old employer Boeing, all congratulating him and offering him exorbitant amounts of money. At least they were last night, there's nothing new this morning as they probably get the message at this point. Macaulay moves on to discussing what would be expected of him when he gets back to Earth, with Albert already having a good idea of it. He'll be speaking with people of all different countries, with interpreters, but first he'll be speaking with bilingual engineers, not those working on the ships themselves, but people on the oversight committees. Albert doesn't really understand what he means by oversight committees, so Macaulay explains that the UN will be building and launching the ships, but every country wants to make sure that the engines are not being built or launched in a way that's going to compromise the security of their nation. Albert says that he's trying to focus on what Macaulay is saying, but it sounds like something he can sort out once he gets back home, and asks if they can talk about something else. It occurred to him that all of these nations and governments and agencies are scared enough at this point that they're working together, but why has he only been talking with Macaulay, and not even with the head of SATCOM or the director of NASA? Macaulay explains that talking with people is sort of his job, as he talks with people from other groups in NASA or maybe in the FAA or other similar agencies to get information and relay it to his bosses so they can all make informed decisions. Albert understands, so Macaulay moves on to say that the downside to all of this diplomacy going on is that everyone is arguing right now, and if Albert comes back down while they're arguing, it may backfire. Albert understands that as well, so Macaulay is going to give him some instructions to clean off his dirty CO2 filters, and he may have to start rationing his food and water supply for a bit. Macaulay is then interrupted by Ferris, and after a few seconds, he tells Albert to listen to him very closely, as someone has just launched a missile heading on an intercept course towards the Tachyon Express. Albert begins to panic, but Macaulay tells him that if he panics, he dies, so they need to work to solve this. Albert begins to slow his breathing, as Macaulay tells him he has two minutes and five seconds until impact. He begins looking around his cabin, saying that he's looking for a small green notebook, containing a bunch of information he needs to input trajectory. Macaulay asks if he's going to use the drive again, and Albert just raises his voice and asks if he's going to help him look or not. Spotting it on the livestream, Macaulay points it out, and Albert begins to frantically flip through it while moving over to the navigational controls. He rapidly types into a keyboard while muttering to himself, cutting off Macaulay when he tries to say something. The proximity alarm in his ship goes off, causing him to get up to turn it off, before going back into the notebook and continuing to type. Macaulay tells him he has 60 seconds till impact, as Albert fixes a mistake he made in his input, saying how much he wishes he had brought a mouse along. He then says that he's good on navigation, with 40 seconds left, but he has to run the startup checks, as they're important. He then says that he doesn't need his headset right now, tossing it aside, as Macaulay shouts for him to put it back on. 
Back in Mission Control, the room is looking at two large screens, one showing Albert on his live stream referencing a notebook and operating some controls, while the other shows a missile on the path to intercept the ship. Ferris tells Macaulay to stop shouting for Albert, as he can't hear him and he needs to work. An MTF has launched an interceptor to take care of the missile, but it's not going to make it, with 30 seconds until impact. A satellite operator then says that the projectile's not on an intercept course, as it's pathing above the ship. Suddenly a new contact appears, approaching at Mach 11, and they receive a message from the GOC saying that the new contact is theirs. They're attempting to intercept the missile with a railgun, and a few seconds later, the projectile hits the missile. The resulting explosion knocks Albert off of his chair and sends him face first into the cabin's ceiling. He falls out of sight of the camera, as imaging shows the ship is now spinning hard, knocked out of orbit. Albert is likely unconscious due to the force of the spin, as Ferris asks what the trajectory of the ship looks like. It's too early to make any definitive calls, but it looks to be heading towards the North Pole. Ferris requests an emergency scramble of MTF Delta-14, trained to handle anomalies in sub-zero environments, and tells them to coordinate with the GOC on retrieval. On the livestream, Albert's bloody hand appears, grabbing the armrest of the chair. He pulls himself up against the direction of rotational gravity, and he's suffering from a severe nosebleed, with the amplified gravity causing it to be a thick red line going down his face, beard, and jumpsuit. The entire mission control room watches as he loops his left arm around the armrest, reaching for the controls with his right arm. He's seen visibly straining to reach them, but fails to grab the controls twice as more blood starts to eject from his nose. His eyes appear to be bloodshot and blinking rapidly, but he tries a third time, successfully reaching the console, before losing his grip and falling out of the chair once again, out of view. The satellite operator informs Ferris that the Sentinel-2 satellite is picking up elevated heat readings from the ship, and they bring up the image of the ship itself on screen. The rear of the ship is seen glowing a bright yellow for less than a second before the entire ship disappears out of sight. Albert had succeeded in activating his drive, so they're going to have to find out where he went. Ferris tells the team to check Heimdall for FTL events, cancel the MTF request, inform the GOC, and find out where the missile came from. He then tells Macaulay to lock the doors. Getting the entire world to work together on anything is no small task, especially when it doesn't involve something like global annihilation. Tempting every country on Earth with the idea of perhaps the greatest technological innovation to ever occur is almost surely going to lead to some conflict. The Foundation wants to keep this thing contained, the GOC want it destroyed, the UN are going to endlessly bicker to make sure as many regulations and procedures are in place as possible, while most countries want the tech for themselves to become an unparalleled superpower. Trapped in the middle of all this is the affable Albert Maple, and while we still have no idea how he managed to come up with this technology on his own, and how anomalous it actually is, he seems to be an alright guy. 
Obviously, it's pretty unlikely that this story ends with everyone happy, but we'll have to see what exactly happens with Albert and the Maple Drive in part two.